Hi, I'm Jess and I'm the oldest. Oi, I'm the oldest. I'm Shtee, I'm the dad and this is actually my podcast. And I'm Tommy, I'm the youngest. Welcome to the podcast. At the heart of hearts, we're all very creative. I've had a very interesting life. You've travelled all over the world. I remember being... Oh, interesting. This is not how I remember the story story. story. Pints are not a good measure for filling Jacobs as fuel. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 26 of the Podclarks. I'm here with all of your favourites. It's Tommy, it's Stevie and me. So, what should we do this week? Month. What should we do this month? <laughs> Cut that bit also, out. Also, can, can I caveat that um, I'd like to imagine that people's favourites include um, Mutz Clark, who has been with us the last two episodes, but who isn't with us this time. So when you say it includes all your favourites, it may exclude um, one of your yeah. favourites. That is very true. Anyway, here we are. Um, 26. That is not a significant age, so I've got no interesting jokes or comments to make about that. But still, Stephen, got a story for us today? Oh, I've got a whole trail of stories. Um, I, I, I listened back to uh, our last episode, which, if it shows we've had a listener, it was probably me. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, Jay, you were saying that uh, you thought in the previous episode to that, which was episode 24, uh, I'd left a cliffhanger. Mm. And uh, so that made me go back and listen to episode 24, but I didn't have time to listen to it. And do you know, one of the things that's bothersome about um, podcast pod- podcast providers is uh, they don't seem to provide most of them a little player to allow you to fast forward and um like uh you just have to listen to it and and if you stop it stops but anyway i didn't have time to zip through to the very end to find out what the cliffhanger was but i think i know um i think it was that i had left my job and Mutz had gone full time i'd been to las vegas and then i'd randomly met this woman called Helen at a meeting, and that was the gateway to the rest of my life. I think that was the cliffhanger. Anyway, isn't that it? was indeed. But that, that's going to be the cliffhanger now, anyway. So um, I thought I would take it on from that point and say a little bit more uh, about Helen because after that meeting, uh, I then worked with her for the next pretty much 12 or 13 years, even longer than that, actually. Um, she was quite right. She said, when I said to her, I didn't know what I was going to do now. And she said, I do. You're going to come and work for me, young man. She didn't say the young man. <laughs> but she, she might, was thinking it. She might have <laughs> well have done. Yeah. Uh, and just to remind the new listeners who are flocking in, um, that, that Helen's a, a bit like the Queen. And, uh, oh, she was. She died a couple of years ago now, age 96. But um, she had that way of, of really like she never would take no for an answer uh, in the nicest possible way, really. Um, but anyway, Helen had had this vision in the night. Um, she'd woken up uh, and she was at this, this is in 1998 or something, she, but at which point she was about 70. So um, uh, if uh, anybody is 70 and thinks they've uh, done all the useful stuff they can, you're wrong. Listen in for the <laughs> next few episodes. Because Helen had this vision, and the vision that she had was to uh, help educate um, or give knowledge to women all around the world, particularly the poorest women. Um, And the vision was to use modern technology, because she was thinking many of these people who perhaps haven't been to school are in remote places, they can't be got at easily. So it's very expensive 
to provide an education to people like that. Um, but technology gives us that chance. And I think she said one time, you know, who would have guessed even 30 years ago that that we'd be able to send an, the entire works of Shakespeare from Edinburgh to Queenstown in Australia, if there is a Queenstown in Australia, um, <laughs> sort of more or less instantly and uh, for no cost, practically. Who would have thought that? You know, and uh, anyway, so this has got to be a route to, to doing something useful in the world. And she also thought that um, the internet had been used uh, for great harm and it had been used for quite a bit of profit, but it hadn't really been used for great good yet. And that this was her vision. Um, and she was hunting around for some hapless uh, charity worker to help her make this come to fruition. And her gaze landed on me mm-hmm. and uh, she wouldn't she wouldn't take no for an answer. And uh, and, and, and as if you didn't listen to episode episode uh, 25 dear listener then go back and listen to it because it's a very interesting story anyway um (laughs) it's worth a little bit of background on helen because she's an unusual person and she will crop up quite a lot in the next few episodes um she was born into privilege uh that's very true um she wasn't even middle class she was upper class really um but her mother died in childbirth uh, when she was giving birth to Helen. So she she never knew her real mother. Um, And her father fairly quickly remarried. And then her father died when she was age six. Um, Mm. And he he died on a boat going to Africa uh, in what Helen always described as mysterious circumstances. (laughs) But she would would never say any more about it. What does that mean? Well, who knows? Who knows? Um... But I, I think she was never satisfied that anyone had got to the real reason why he'd died on this boat. He, he incidentally, was on the way to found a hospital in uh, Kenya, I think it was, in Africa. And that, came, that hospital did eventually get founded, and there's a, it, it might even be named after him, I'm not sure. But, but he never made it because he died on the boat. Um, so right at the very beginning of her life, you know, it wasn't a normal kind of life. Um, but her her father's second wife really brought her up, and she always used to call her mummy. And um, uh, was this woman was a very exceptional woman, and sort of nurtured Helen and, and brought her up. Now, when Helen got to the age of eighteen, um, somehow or other, she well by then she spoke fluent French because she had been to one of these finishing schools. Uh, where young ladies of upper class, or in the old days, were taught French. And she got invited to an interview in a crummy old office above a shop in Baker Street in London. Um, And if you Google this, um, I believe you'll find, although I haven't done this myself, um, that this is well known to be a place where spies were recruited in those <laughs> days and she didn't know why she'd gone there or what the reason for the interview was or even what the job was um but she had been put forward as a potential spy basically <laughs> so, wow. so from from her finishing school i don't know who or how these things work but i mean as we know a bit more about it nowadays 
and it's still a little bit of the case, all of those things were operated by an elite group of people who all came from the same background and s- selected from their own group to do the things that were needed. Um, but she was only 18 when this happened, so she was mm. uh, young and inexperienced, but, you know, a strong character. Anyway, she accepted the challenge, whatever it was to be. And I mean, she was she was always saying, I can't say too much because I signed the Official Secrets Act. But I mean, you know, it was like mm. eight, 80 years ago. And I said, hey, you know, all, all the other people who are in your category um, are singing like canaries. They're writing books, <laughs> they're making documentaries. And, um, and in fact, because of that, so I, when she came out to visit us here in France, um, latterly, uh, we, we did hire the local... Um, uh, village hall and I put her on a stage and we got quite an audience actually um, and she told some quite amazing stories about her life as a spy I mean I say a spy just to be dramatic for the pod clerks but um, it's uh, she, she was in the secret service something called the special operations executive or SOE um, which is referred to sort of colloquially as Churchill's secret army and uh, it was a, a a group of people that were part of the secret service that Churchill um, commissioned, particularly for certain tasks. I don't know enough about it to say much more, but you get the picture. She was an interesting person. Mm. She told me once when she'd just arrived at the uh, headquarters where she was going to work, it wasn't Bletchley Park. It was somewhere like Bletchley Park. I can't remember the name of it now, but it was a country house. Um, and I guess this was at the beginning of the of the Second World War. I'd have to work out the dates, but um, she she arrived at this big country house and was was um, given a job of broadcasting coded messages via the BBC to French agents working out in the field out here in France. Um, and interesting enough, that's in her late in her life, she came out for a holiday and stayed with us uh, five times, maybe even six times, I think. Um, And we went on trips around France with her uh, in her car because she just loved seeing the names of places where she had had direct links with um, French resistance fighters all those years ago. Um, Mm. And and she could still uh, remember all those names. She could remember a lot of them and uh, she, she... would would talk about the fact that if you made a mistake in her work, it had, you know, it had quite a lot of consequences, really. Um, people would die, is what she said. And mm. I think there was one one occasion when she was broadcasting a message that was based on, on information that came in. I mean, I can't quite imagine, and none of us can really, what it was like, because everything was in code. Um, it was... The communications were nothing like they are today. Lots of chances of, you know, Morse code was was used a lot. Lots of chances of mistakes and things going wrong. Um, uh, and, and on this one occasion, they did go wrong. And, um, well, let, let's say that the there was going to be a landing or a parachuting into France uh, one night. And the wrong location was given. And so the proper precautions weren't taken in that location and they were dropped into a into a place where they were the, the group were then um arrested by the by the german occupying forces here in france and uh you know i mean when she told that story you could tell 
she felt a bit responsible. She'd been part of the chain of communication, um, even though it was was nothing to do with her, really. But, I mean, very colourful character. You will have met her, might remember a bit about her, but uh, very interesting uh, person to, to have as a friend and to have as, a, have as a work colleague. But what I wanted to say about the other thing that happened to her at this mansion in the countryside is that uh, she went down into... I was asked to go down into the basement where I think they kept some records of um, uh, uh, of something like that. And she was followed down the stairs into the basement by this uh, senior officer who had no business to be following her down into the basement, really. And when uh, they got down there on their own, it became obvious why he had followed her down and he was trying to assault her. And given the sort of difference in their seniority, she was an 18-year-old woman, just turned up on the site. He was a senior officer. Um, but, I mean, Helen being Helen, she fought him off and uh, uh, ducked underneath his arms and kicked him in the backside or something and and, and, and escaped. But uh, he he gave her an injury in the struggle that she had or suffered from right through to the end of her life. Um, I, I think it was a shoulder that that he tore, you know, he tore a ligament or something. And the injury wasn't serious later in life, but it, it was something that troubled her, and she would just talk about it um, from time to time. And I said to her, Helen, did you did you do anything about that? You know, did you mm. did you report it? Did you? And she said, I I couldn't. She said, I just couldn't. And partly because of the sort of the pressure of the seniority and the power dynamic. But um, but also, and this is, you know, something interesting thing from Helen's kind of perspective, really. Also, she said, if I had reported him and if it had been taken seriously, his career would have been finished and his family would have been um, traumatised. And... Uh, I mean, those issues haven't changed in 2023, but it was very interesting to hear her say, you know, age 92 or something, that, that that's how her, how she viewed it in those days and, and, and she, she didn't do anything. That is, that is, seems wild to be thinking about the, the, the well-being of it, your assaulter. Yeah, yeah, totally. Mm. It was his choice to do that, so unthinkable in our, our... I mean, things have still got a long way to change, but I think there are, there are differences uh, from from those days. Anyway, she um, was merrily in that, in that building uh, doing coding. Uh, she was trained in some destruction techniques uh, because she wanted... I don't know if you saw the, the movie Charlotte Grey, but uh, uh, that talked mm-hmm. about... Um, a woman who was part of the special operations executive and Helen was trained for that same sort of action to be parachuted into France. But um, because she was 18, she needed her parents permission, <laughs> which seems so funny <laughs> these days. Um, what, what age do you not need it? Well, in those days it was 21, I suppose. Right. Um, but uh, her, her real mother died, her real father had died and her, her stepmother I didn't didn't give her permission, I guess. Anyway, she didn't do any of that. But she used to say to me, she said, Stephen, she said, I often wondered um, why I had gone through all those training and destruction and sort of negative techniques, she said, but I never got to use them until... And then with a sort of 
uh, wicked smile on her face. She said, uh, quite some time later, I was, um, I was appointed to be a chair of a, a local health committee in Sussex. And uh, I mean, the health service has all, has all changed now. But, um, and she said, and, and, um, and she said, there was such a shambles, the whole thing. I decided that I had to use my destruction techniques to put it back <laughs> into shape. And she told, told a story of one of these meetings she went to where uh, the only, in the end, she, she said, um, she wasn't chair of this one. She was just a, a, a delegate. And after sort of two hours or something or three hours, she, she got up and said, Mr. Chairman, point of order. She said, I've been doing some calculations and I'm making these figures up as I'm going along. But she said, I've been doing some calculations and we've been here for two and a half hours. And uh, to my best guess, this meeting has cost us uh, £3,400 in the time that people have given to it. And we have made one useful decision, which is the date of the next meeting. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, wow. uh, and I thought... I thought then, you know, you, you wouldn't really want her ag- against you. Um, mm. But anyway, I mean, I worked with her for 15 years and we were singing from the same song she and uh, a great and inspiration, uh, inspiring person to work with. So what was this vision and how did it play out? Well, I just wanted to mention this episode about the beginning of it because she said, you know, there are people around the world who've not been to school uh, they're not living healthy lives, their lives are short, and it doesn't be, have to be like that. How could you get knowledge to those sort of people? Now, I had a friend, this is my phony friend from episode nine, seven, six, fourteen, or 3, I can't remember which one, um, but Andrew, who was head of a media company. And so given that Helen's vision was for technology, I rang him up and said, uh, what, what are we going to do about this? So we met on um at a service station on the m40 uh there's one just by high wickham there and um just south of oxford and he came up from the south i went down from the north and we met there and it's a sort of an epic meeting where we pulled out a, a, a notepad and some pens and said right how would you what would you do to to teach somebody something somebody who perhaps couldn't read or write perhaps had never been to school and perhaps didn't speak a mainstream language so we just wrote down various criteria um if i can remember them um there were they were things like uh number one it, it needs to be very simple it's got to be very simple you need to be able to push a button and it works you you can't have any of this kind of load this transfer this file open this this you know mm. restart your computer it's got to be something that works out of the box um it's got to be reliable so that every time you switch it on, you see the same thing and it's familiar. Um, it would be very handy if it was audio visual, because we know that learning, if you see things, it, it you learn better. It would really need to be in the person's own language, because there's no point if it's going to be audio in another language that they don't speak. Mm. And it should be cheap to replicate it should be something that you could make multiple copies of and not have to pay ten thousand pounds each time you make another copy in a different language or something like that so we started off um looking at network computers um and trying to work out how you could sort of have a network um that would and bear in mind this is 1999 um so 
the internet was very new, then it was dial-up connections, even in Europe. So uh, the idea of having a, a sort of a instant access uh, internet connection wasn't realistic. Anyway, we scrapped that very quickly. But there was a brand new technology coming out, it had just come out, and it was called DVD, if you can believe it. And, um, <laughs> and I, I, don't, I mean, you might not remember this, but in, in our house um, in Warwick, uh, Andrew gave me, which he got hold of from one of his suppliers, uh, a DVD player. And <laughs> it, was, it was a huge box. I mean, you know, it, was, it was really heavy to, to lift. And it was about mm. the size... What was it about the size? It was, well, you know one of those wheel-along cases that you put in the in the above the seats in an aeroplane mm-hmm. it was about the size of that and it was a dvd, oh my God. DVD wow. plane. and it cost four thousand pounds <laughs> that's bananas if you ever need sort of a reminder of how technology advanced that's what you think of because now you get a dvd player that's only just bigger than a dvd yeah and you, you i don't, don't know really how the... dvd players anymore well, do you? well exactly <laughs> no, but thinking about how that much hardware i can you can sort of I can kind of imagine software getting better as we learn more about it, but kind of hardware things, you think, well, it needs to have the components that it needs in order for it to work. But mm. obviously with the DVD player, that things change. Anyway. Yeah, well, I mean, they're based on lasers, and I think the, the, eventually the way lasers could move and are handled were, were, were greatly simplified. But mm. we, we knew that this technology would allow interactivity, which was another thing that would be a sort of real bonus because... Um, there's some statistics that show if you tell somebody something, they forget it pretty quickly. If you tell them and ask them questions, it 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 they they last much longer. So if there could be some sort of interactivity with posing questions, we, we knew the learning would be would be more resilient. Um, and DVD had that built into it. I mean, we quickly learned something that never changed, which that that DVD was a very clunky technology, and um, lots of of people didn't sort of. Uh, stick to the standards, the international standards that were were, were de- designed into it, um, and we had a lot of troubles. Anyway, we decided on a on a DVD based format, um, and came up with uh, uh, the idea of of making a bit of film. Um, and I'm telling you this, but you know both know it. But I'm telling it for the dear listener who has no idea. <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> A bit of film and a soundtrack and the short, the short bits of film with short bits of soundtrack. And the idea was that you would, the soundtrack would be individual audio files that you could just take out and replace with other audio files for, if you were changing the language and it would be quick and cheap. Um, and um, in, in one sense, it was a, it was a good idea. Uh, what came quickly, obviously, is that English is a very concise language so that if you say I walk around the, sh- the corner to the shop to buy some cheese in English, it might take you f- five seconds to say that. But once it's translated into another language, it can often take them seven or eight seconds um, or longer. Some shorter, but mostly English is the shortest language. So um, we had to find a way of adjusting the, the size or the length of the video track to match the new sounds. And therein lied and lay a huge problem. And... Well, you would have thought it would be easy to automate that, but we never managed to do it, and uh, it 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 always required human intervention. Um, and uh, sometime later, we we got some real experts to look at trying to do this, and nobody ever managed to do it successfully. Mm. Um, 
And in fact, we, we hooked up with a, a, a media company who, who said they would do it all for us. And they automated up. They say they spent a million pounds on that automation process. And it never worked properly. <laughs> oh, no. I'd forgotten about that. A million pounds. That's what How? they say. Is that just on like wages? I don't know where I don't know where that figure came from, and I I don't know, but th- th- that's what they say. But as as you both understand, because you you both did did this work this bit of work um, it, it yourselves, um, it is a, a sort of real faff uh, individually changing <laughs> the lengths mm. uh, lengths of sound. Um, but out of I was found there was something quite pleasing about oh, it. Oh, very pleasing. It, you know, you're really oh, yeah. just getting it correct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, making but, things line up, basically. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, like, it's almost like tidying. Yeah, <laughs> it's exactly that. <laughs> Digital tidying. But you're, but you're helping someone at the same time. Well, I mean, the, the really great thing is, I'm, I'm sort of going way off script here, really, but I mean, that out of that bit job that, that we got various people to do and that you did, um, uh, we started off, with one topic and and Helen's original vision had come from the fact that she had been to various communities in Africa where AIDS was was devastating uh the population and and, and people were just dying and uh, and there was no hope and that so she came back and when she talked about education she was really um keen that the um uh, the the first topic would be around the subject of HIV and AIDS and how to avoid it. And indeed, that was the first lesson that we made. Um, but that HIV and AIDS lesson was later translated into 72 languages, I think, um, and put onto wow. DVDs that went to those 72 different communities. Um, and on another track... When much later we did some testing to find out whether people learnt anything from from this kind of new format, um, we found out that not only did they learn it, but it changed behaviour. Now, people, and nobody knows really how to change people's behaviour. It's really difficult um, to get people to change something that they normally do to do it differently. But we discovered in Rwanda uh, on a bit of research that happened that, that there was a big change in the number of people presenting with worm infections um, was down by 40%. So now Mm. 40% is statistically significant, whichever way you cut the cake. Mm. And um, the interesting thing about that is that the lesson they were watching, which was a subsequent lesson on basic hygiene, um, didn't mention anything to do with worm infections. It, it, It doesn't even appear. But that's a proxy for better hygiene which is what the lesson was all about mm. and so it was, it was even more brilliant than that the, they asked 10 people and they all said yes I wash my hands now it was actually a clear indicator that uh, mm. that was the difference between people who'd seen our lessons and people who who hadn't but it also means that diarrhea and dysentery would have a similar kind of effect and those are killers those are things that kill children mm. so all of that sort of vision that Helen had in the night that resulted from a meeting on the M40 you know over a cafe table um with andrew we we know has has saved lives and has changed communities which is uh which is rather a amazing, amazing thing and also the mm. other the other key thing that i think was clever about the idea with dvds is it being transportable and and very portable and therefore being able to take it to really rural and really remote communities who 
were much less likely to be able to have access to that sort of thing. I think that that because the two things combined of the very simple interactive lessons mixed with it being on a format that meant it could really go anywhere was just very very clever. Mm. And if you just grab a DVD and fling it as well, you can throw it quite far. So it's very cheap to transport. <laughs> well, it's very funny what you say there because um, later on in this whole story, we had uh, a woman called Mary as a volunteer who made all the DVDs. She actually physically printed them. And, uh, and she had a vision one day. It, she, and Mary is the most feet-on-the-ground person I ever have known. She's a farm pharmacist so she's you know a data focused person and not somebody who's given to sort of um well visions really and it was also in the middle of the day it wasn't at night it wasn't a dream she Mm. was in her home and she suddenly saw this dvd being thrown like you say tommy just slung (laughs) and it disappeared and it went it went right over the horizon behind some hills and she said she said in her in her heart of hearts and in her head, she expected it like a boomerang to come back. That was, that was the natural expectation. But it didn't. And, th- and then she thought to herself, what that is said to me, and it, for her it was very motivating in her work and it became motivating for the rest of us, is that once you've given knowledge to somebody, once you've thrown that knowledge to them, Nobody can take that back again. You know, it doesn't come, mm. it, it, it can't be sold, it can't be stolen. Um, now, people, of course, can choose what they want to do with that knowledge, but but it's gone. You know, it doesn't come back. And I thought that was amazing, which is really funny that you said mm-hmm. you can throw it. Mm-hmm. That's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> I think the other um, interesting thing that I, I don't think you mentioned in your brief of the lessons is that they are... It's it's not just a lecture that you listen to with with pictures that goes along with it. There's also a quiz element and at the end of each chapter as it were you you have to answer a question correctly based on what you've just heard in order to progress to the next bit which reinforces that learning cycle and I think that was a really um, another reason why it was complicated to make but another reason why I think it worked, <laughs> worked really well. so well I remember when we went out to India uh, to do some of the kind of lesson I think we were just sharing them maybe rather than recording but mm. watching a group um because you because in the lesson you sort of have a lesson you answer a question and as Toby said you have to progress to you have to get it right to go forward but then at the end once you've done your sort of 10 mini lessons there's there's like an overall quiz that tests kind of how much you've you've retained and I really remember watching this group just like get go through that quiz and getting them right and thinking I'd never, I don't know that I'd ever quite seen sort of tangible learning happen in that, that way, where you're just <laughs> yeah. like, I don't know, Look, it, was, it was amazing. Because um, we, we, we started, the very first thing we did was the quiz, and they got three out of, oh, three out of ten. Oh, yes, that's right, that's why. they got a score yes. of three out of ten, and I think the last score was maybe nine or even ten, I can't quite yeah. remember, but it was... It, so before they'd watched the content, yeah, you did yeah. the quiz and then you did it after. Mm. I mean, it's very anecdotal, it's a one-off, but I, even I was really struck by that, because um, mm. if, if that was that group of Indian women who were living under the under the bridges, wasn't it, on the streets, yes. I think? Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and what we learned from them is that they were they were frightened of each other, or they were frightened of people who had HIV, but they learned mm. from this lesson that you can't get it by touching people, which is, mm. I mean, I, the whole thing was, a rem- I've forgotten that we did that together, Jay. It was uh, yeah, remarkable. Yeah, it was amazing. 
So uh, we've we've managed to get this sort of format together um, and started producing them. And really, I mean, that laid the foundation for the next uh, 15 years of my life, I suppose. Um, But I I was going to ask you both, actually, um, what your memories of AIDS and HIV as as a disease, as a condition was sort of growing up because it it was very much around still um without any treatment and i don't i don't know if it's sunk into your subconscious or your conscious or you remember anything about that well i think we grew up i mean well can't speak for you tommy but i feel like i was growing up at a time where it was starting to shift away from i think certainly you know what it was in the 80s and you kind of hear about the sort of their was it a pandemic an epidemic I don't no, know. No, it's a pandemic. It was a, it was a absolutely pandemic. a pandemic. Yeah. yeah, it was on every continent. Um, yeah. mm. Kind of the in in the eighties and and you know and and I think particularly the story of Diana shaking uh, that that patient's hand and sort of that being a really revolutionary moment. But that would have happened in the early nineties, and I certainly I don't feel like growing up it was it was a it it was a kind of a really present thing in the same right. way that i think it had been but i think because i think when we for me when we started working on those lessons it felt very much like the maybe the uk had had sort of um understood much more of that of kind of what the implications were of aids and hiv and that it it wasn't sort of you know, you it it wasn't passed on by by touching people and that sort of thing. But I don't know if that's the same for you, Tommy, or if. Yeah, agree. I can't think that I had any other experience than that. No, I, <laughs> I think yeah, it wasn't wasn't something that was hugely present. I don't think in my earlier years. I feel like when I was doing the DVDs, kind of, I guess I was learning about it too. I remember yeah. seeing like a casualty episode or something where there was a doctor or like a paramedic or somebody who I think had HIV um, and the the episode was sort of centred around the fact they went to go and help someone and the person who had HIV got a cut and so there was a, it was something to do with a worry about like blood having mixed and I, I sort of remember that, and it was certainly, I think, had a layer of taboo in in terms of the, the person who had HIV had not told anyone, which was why it was kind of what the episode was doing was sort of, you know, kind of, it, it was a secret. And so I, it's, it feels like it certainly wasn't, um, definitely not an easy thing for anybody to kind of, it wasn't. Mm. I feel like now it's much more. It just feels much more, kind of normalized. And there's treatments, and there's, like, it just feels much more. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, I think I, I think normalized normalized. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, you can go and get a test easily, and like, yeah, the stigma I think like. is much less. But um, it it still can't be cured. People people think it can, but it can't. And. Um, the treatments and not you know it, it people are still at risk of it even in the uk but they probably don't feel at risk of it um uh but anyway uh what what we rapidly learned sort of in around the world is that there were myths and um 
uh, wrong information that were were shockingly dangerous. I mean, the the most sort of common obvious one was that in a number of countries it was it was believed that you, if you had sex with a virgin that would would cure you of AIDS, AIDS, which of oh, course, wow. gosh. and because women are more infectable than men, it it that is a sort of a high transmission rate mm. really um so Gosh, that's awful people are so confusing in their brains sometimes Things yeah that come up you're like how where does that possibly come from mm. but also i mean what we found is that that you know quite quite um educated informed and even influential people didn't agree with some of the messages that we were trying to communicate um and I mean, this is a great thing about Helen was, you know, she she was sort of, some would say she was born with a silver spoon in her mouth, but she was just as ready to talk about her condom as the next person kind of thing. Mm. She was, she was uh, very down to earth and um, uh, she what? was just like, yeah. Why were they, why were they not, um, like, you say medical people weren't approving of the messages? Yeah, I mean, sometimes uh, the message is not that easy to decide because if I... If if somebody is trying to give a message to a particular person who you know their situation and their background, their culture, then that message is relatively easy to design and create and cultivate. Mm. The big problem with our model was that it was generic. The message mm. had to be applicable to all cultures, all um, languages, all places. Otherwise, the system didn't work. And mm-hmm. educationalists, even... I mean, I had a quite an interesting conversation with the education professional um in london who was saying your your model is is bad it's not only um it's it's not only that it's it doesn't it won't work it's it's actually negative because you you can't have a message that is so generic on some of these things that's so important and after toing and froing on it you know our, our judgment my judgment was always you can't have perfection you, you but while we don't do anything, people are dying. So mm. if you say that out of 100,000 people, there might be 300 who our message has a negative effect on for some reason that we haven't thought about or can't see, but the the other 900,000, 90,000, that to me is a, it's worth doing something. Anyway, I had this great conversation with the person. I said to them, Eventually, I got so frustrated. I said, "Well, what are you doing?" And and she said, "Well, I'm doing a PhD." <laughs> I'm afraid I did say. I said, "Well, well, when you've been somewhere real and looked into the eyes of someone who's at risk of AIDS and doesn't know how to mm. avoid it, then come back and we can talk about how how you can because if you look at how many the sorts of organisations that are publishing languages, sorry, publishing material in lots of languages." Most of them are huge. You know, it's it's a it's a very big, expensive job to publish in mm. multiple languages. So people don't do it. So um, anyway, I, I'm I'm happy with my position. <laughs> Same. I think another another um, just to kind of clarify and even more push home this the cool thing about the DVDs that you were making was mm. the languages that it was translated into were like some of them were hyper local, right? There were mm. there were languages that we that were translated to that had never been written down before um so it was really providing something that just wouldn't have been possible in any other way to those people 
Is that right? Great. Fair to say. No, great story. I mean, it's, this is a unique example, but um, I bumped into a chap from Kenya who had came from the um, Terek uh, group of people in northern, northwestern Kenya, Kenya. And Terek was a language that hadn't been written down. And he, mm. he had gone to school, university, and come to Bristol to study. And his, his study was about designing a dictionary, an alphabet, for his language. So it, there, was, huh. there, was, there was no resource in the world at all in that language. So we sat him down. I said, right, um, Kip, I'm going to read you a sentence in English, and here's my microphone. And on the hoof, I want you to translate it into Terek and read it into this microphone. And so then we got our audio files to fit into the thing. And two days later, we had the only resource, which happened to be an interactive DVD, audiovisual DVD, the only resource in the whole world in that language. And, and that's when I thought, we've, we've done something that nobody else has actually done before, which was really exciting. Because mm. yeah. those people, only about 50,000 people speak that language. So nobody's going to bother to do anything for them because it's not it's not cost effective it's you know you, you can't it's not worth the effort um and they they have either got to learn another language or well they can't learn otherwise so um mm-hmm. yeah no you're right it's very cool well this story will run and run because there's a lot more to it <laughs> but, uh, yeah. thanks for that interaction it's very exciting reliving it actually because there were heady days and um and good outcomes, really. It is amazing to also just think about how much technology has changed. You know, I sort of think, I think like our lifetime of growing up, we've seen, it's like a really crazy kind of shift in technology. And just, you know, like the internet being dial up and email being barely used and DVDs like just coming out like when we were kids. And then now... Gone, mm. they're finished. It's like 30 years later and it's, it just, it's kind of extraordinary. So anyway, all of that, which, um, which, which started out um, as, as an organisation called the Starfish Initiative, which was a terrible name because it, it, it always sounded like you were sneezing if you were answering the telephone or something. <laughs> Starfish Initiative. Starfish Initiative. Bless you. And then the other, the other funny thing is I was once on the radio talking about it and the chap introduced... <laughs> <laughs> he, he introduced me as the director of the Starship Enterprise. He got, what? He got, just he started off on Star and ended up with completely the wrong thing. That was such a bad time to take a sip of water. <laughs> director of the Starship Enterprise. Enterprise. That's pretty. So that was a promotion. It was a big promotion. Anyway, um, over the years, it's morphed in, but it, a couple of times, and it, it's it's now called uh, Education Saves Lives. Uh, net, I suppose, and um, that's what it says on the tin. Yeah. So um, yeah, go look if you don't know about it, people. And that's all I have for you today at forty-three minutes. That's plenty of enough. Plenty enough, I'd say. EducationSavesLives.org. Ah, I was dot. just trying to find the same thing. <laughs> Love a bit of podcast clarity. Always. Clarity. Great. Well, it's, yeah, it's really it's nice to um, uh, talk about this particular time because we we went out on a few different adventures uh yeah. to sort of help with the dvds so look forward to reliving all of that i spent many hours behind a computer screen helping with the uh making of them <laughs> not not quite as adventurous but um, you came to south africa that's true next ne- next time anecdotes from you <clears throat>
Ugh. Excellent. Yeah. Maybe. There was this one time I clicked on the X button in the corner <laughs> and it closed. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my gosh. Excellent. Thanks, Steve. You're very welcome. See everyone next time. I think it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. Oh, one last thing. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>